0: After assuming the presidency at Princeton, Jonathan Edwards was given a lethal dose of the smallpox vaccine. Approximately two weeks later, Jonathan's wife, Sarah, wrote these words to their daughter. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had with your Father so long. But my God lives, and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your Father has left us. We are all given to God And there I am and love to be your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. That causes me to want to ask you, how is it that she could write those kinds of words about not just her husband, but more specifically about her God? Jonathan Edwards was a young man just assumed the presidency at Princeton after quite a hard life. And he's dead because of an accident, a medical accident. And she says, our God has done it. And he's good. In one word... I know how Sarah Edwards could say what she said, and that one word, if we're going to distill it all down, the one word is the word providence, which is what we're studying right now. It's because of providence. It's because she knew who God was. She knew the reality of Romans 8.28. Her husband certainly knew it, and she knew it as well, and that is that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and for those who are called according to his purposes, that 's how she could say that, that 's how she could get through that time as difficult as it, as it was. And let me tell you that is how you too, can face the difficulties of life. Ultimately, it 's the only way to face the difficulties of life. Remember, Romans 828 comes in the greater context of a chapter that is helping us as Christians deal with suffering. It's helping with us as Christians deal with the difficulties of life. As we've said before, we live in a broken world, and not only does that make life hard, secondly, we're associated with Christ, which guarantees suffering for us to some degree or another because we know what they did to Him, and we're united with Him. And so we're doing this series, Amidst Romans 8, on providence if you want to know what providence is, just read Romans 8.28. I can't think of a better way of explaining providence than, than that actual verse. What we're doing is we're looking at ten truths about providence. Ten truths about providence that do multiple things. They help you to understand who God is. It's pretty important. Uh, not only that, they help us to understand how God works in this world. Very important. Not only that, it help, helps us to understand how God works in this world for us and for our good as believers. I can't think of anything much more practical than what we're talking about when we talk about providence. We looked at the first two truths about providence last time, and I tried to limit them to one word, just quickly reviewing. Number one, the first word, providence is, first word, known. Known. Providence is known. We see it right there in our verse where the Apostle Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For we know this. And what I suggested to you last time, and if you weren't here, I'll just I'll bring you up to speed. We can't assume even that assumption. It's known, the Apostle Paul says. We know this to be true. It's meant to be known because it's all over the Bible. It's everywhere. It's all throughout church history. Christians have been believing this for a long, long, long time. But we find ourselves amidst quote-unquote Bible-believing Christians at a place in church history where we don't know this. And so that's at least my minimalist goal, okay, in the series that you could at least agree with what it says there when it says, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purpose. We've got to know that. It's assumed that we know that. Otherwise, how can we face the difficult stuff of life? And so let's at least have that be a minimal goal, that we're at least going to know that this reality is true. The second truth about providence that really is vital to understanding God, His work in this world, as well as His love for us. Number two, it's God-centered. Providence is God-centered. Or if you want to be fancy and sound like a theologian, providence is theocentric. It centers on God. Even in our verse, it talks about this is for those who love God. He is the object of our love. It's God-centered in that sense. Those who have been called according to His, God's purposes. He has purposes, or He has a purpose in this world. Ultimately, it's conformity to the image of Christ we saw last time. And so we should see that this reality of providence should cause us to look upward to God as the one that really is being focused upon. How do we get through the tough times? By focusing on self. If we could just look deeper into self. If we could pay other people to help us to think more about ourselves. No! It's God-centered. Providence is God-centered. Let's look to God here in learning how He's at work in this world for His glory and for our good. And now number three this morning. We'll do three and we'll do four. I think we can do number three rather quickly. Number three, third truth about providence that I really want you to understand if you're going to understand God, His work in this world, and His love for you if you're a believer. Number three, particular. Providence is particular. Providence is particular. In other words, to use a synonym, it's specific. And what I mean here by using that one word is, God's providence is for a particular people. Providence is for His people, go ahead and look at the verse again with me if you would, and see the emphasis. And we know that for those who love God. Providence is for those who love God, which is a synonym for saying believers. A synonym, if you want to be Romans-like, for those who've been justified by faith in the perfect work of Christ. Christ. It's particular. It's for them. It's not generic. It's particular. And then there's the second emphasis on particularity in verse 28 as well. In the second part of the verse, for those who are called according to His purpose. It's not generic. It's particular. It's for those who are called. And sometimes people get bent out of shape about this because they want God to be causing all things to work together for good for everyone. And they say, well, that's not fair if it's only for particular people. Well, you don't even want to talk about fair, right? You don't want fair. Fair, Romans 1, 2, and 3, and even going on a little bit, fair is we're all smoked. Fair is we all go to hell, and it's the right thing to do because we all deserve to go to hell. So it's, it's not a good idea. Let me just give you some free counseling to talk to God about fair. And you're going to see this in the Bible if you look for it, even if you don't look for it. There is a certain sense that God is very particular about certain things. And I don't mean that He likes things a certain way, though that might be true too. He has a special love. He has a special providence, if you will, for His children. For those who have been called according to His purpose. I don't want to take a lot of time to talk about this, but it will become very important later. But you can just make a note of it for now. When the Apostle Paul uses the word called, he uses it in a specific way. I've looked up every occurrence multiple times, and I think I'm right in saying whenever Paul talks about called, he's using it as synonymous with someone who is either already a Christian or who will most certainly, no matter what, become a Christian. Somebody who's elect. As a matter of fact, if we keep reading in 28 and 20, or 29 and 30, he talks about this matter of the called in 29, having said they are foreknown and predestined in 29, then in 30, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. So just, just know that when he's talking about those who are called, he's not talking about those who hear the gospel call externally, That's another sense that the Bible uses called, where Jesus says many are called. Paul uses it differently. When he's talking about the called, he's talking about those who are called internally by the Spirit of God. Bible teachers use use the word effectual. Paul uses the term called for the effectual calling when God is going to draw a believer. You say, why are you bringing all that up? Well, it's going to become particularly important after we move to 29 and 30, but I'm bringing it up now so you can understand this particularity of what he's talking about. Providence, in the Romans 8.28 sense, is for God's people, and there's something great about that. I would encourage you, if you're having a beef with that, I would encourage you just to see how great God is in loving His specific people, causing all things to work together for their good. God's prerogative. And if you're a recipient of that, you're a benefactor of that, you say, this is so good. This just shows the wisdom of God. If He has a destination He wants me to reach, which is glorification, that's Romans 8.30, how wise is God to cause all things to work together for my good, because He's already determined that I'm going to be glorified as His child. How good is it that He makes sure that everything along the way is getting me toward His goal? Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God to actually have that happen. Particularity is actually something quite nice, and it's actually very encouraging. This is great also, this particular particular aspect. Even when we stop to think about Christ and the work of Christ, which, by the way, we learned about earlier in chapter 8, which is assumed where we are in chapter 8. You know, all of this is true. All of this... All things work together for good for those who love God and those who have been called according to His purposes. Calling is inseparably linked to the work of Christ. All of this is true for us because of Christ. All of this is meant to exalt Christ who came to give His life a ransom for many, to save His people from their sins, as Matthew 1 says, even with some particularity involved. Just one more aspect to to talk about this particular uh, emphasis of God's love and providence. I would encourage you to think about this historically. Think about how you read the Old Testament. Here's what I'd like you to do. Read the Old Testament. Yeah, now. Ready? Go. (laughs) View the Old Testament Think about the Old Testament, and as you read, try to think about it through a Romans 8.28 lens. God causes all things, even all that Old Testament history, all things to work together for good for those who love God and those who have been called according to His purposes. It doesn't take on a different meaning, but it's more impactful if you stop to think of it in those terms. Read all those Old Testament narratives and know that all that that was happening, event after event after event, circumstance after circumstance after circumstance, somehow was for your good. If you're a believer, if you've been called by God, Now, I realized last week I said, you know, don't read the Old Testament, don't read the Bible with a where's Waldo approach. or always looking for yourself, and it's all self-consumed, self-centered. That still stands. But without contradicting that advice, read the Old Testament and think about God's providence and God's providential love even for you, even though you hadn't been born yet. Because remember, Ephesians 1 would tell us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before time even begins, he's got a plan locked in place. And all things, how about all of that history? And even beyond Old Testament history, I'm using it as an example though, all that Old Testament history somehow was being worked together for my good? This is cool to be theologically technical. (laughs) It's amazing. I like what R.C. Sproul did along these lines in his book on Providence. He suggests that we should think about Joseph. Think about Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat. Okay? How did he get that coat? Well, his father showed favoritism, and he loved Joseph more than the brothers, and so the brothers are jealous and hate-filled toward his brother. That's a bad thing. And What does it have to do with you, and what does it have to do with me? Well, trace the history a little bit, as R.C. does. Then, as a result, he's sold into slavery. Then he goes to Egypt as a slave. Then he's sold to Potiphar. Then you've got the Potiphar's wife incident leading to imprisonment. While he's in prison, he meets the baker and he meets the butler. Not only that, he gets a meeting with Pharaoh as a result of that. Not only that, he eventually becomes what we would call the prime minister. Not only that... We're going to skip ahead a little bit. The Jews are going to settle in Goshen. brings enslavement by the Egyptians. Then we have Moses coming into play. Moses being rescued according to luck. (laughs) Ha ha, not. Then we have the Exodus eventually as a result of that and tied to that. Then we have the law of God given as a result and tied to that. And it wouldn't have happened if there weren't those other events leading up to it. And then if you want to skip ahead, you eventually have the redemptive work of Christ. And then you want to skip ahead and you have God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And now somehow we're connected. Even our redemption is connected to, ultimately, if you trace it back, a father's favoritism. That's not a stretch. R.C. goes on to say, and then he, then he does say, If we telescope this, we conclude that if it were not for Joseph's technicolored coat, there would be no Christianity and every chapter of human history would have a different ending. Hmm. Now you might be saying, well, God could have done it a different way. You're right, he could have, and he didn't. Read history different. I don't know how it's all working together for good all the time, but if Romans 8 is true, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purpose. Everything that has ever happened in history, everything that has ever happened in human history is somehow, I take it, for my good. Try to get your mind around that. It's pretty wild. And ultimately, it's for God's glory we would know. Read history differently. I think Romans 8.28 demands that we read history differently. Maybe this is why I like history now that I'm a Christian and I didn't like it before. It's not only because I'm getting old. In a sense, in a good sense, as Christians, we're obligated to read history differently. takes on a different kind of meaning. Let's move on now to number four, a fourth truth about providence. It is particular, no doubt. But it is also, number four, inclusive. It is inclusive. And I don't mean inclusive of everyone in this particular point. That would be true because there's a sense in which, obviously, God is in control of everything. And God causes all things to work together for bad, for those who don't love Him, those who are not called according to His purpose. Read Revelation 20, but I just said that to be controversial. It's true, but that's not my point here. It's inclusive, and what I mean is it includes every, not everybody, everything, right? Look at the verse. God works all things together for good. That's inclusive. I mean, I I can't get my arms wide enough to try to make the point. He says, all things, okay? He says, all things work together. All things, meaning, you know, big things in life and little things in life and good things in life and bad things in life. You got to deal with it. That's what it says. He causes all things to work together for our good. That's what it says. It's meant for our encouragement. As I've already said, Romans 8, 17 and following in particular has to do with suffering. And so we should remember this comes in the context of suffering. So let's not say, oh yes, God causes all the good things to work work for our good, but not the bad things. The context is otherwise. As a matter of fact, you could make a stronger argument for the bad. But it's not just bad. says all things. And I know That lots and lots and lots of people who say they're Christians don't know this. You might not know this. You might not have ever thought about it. I'm just encouraging you to think about it. Because if you're not thinking about how God causes all things to work together for good, you, you, you don't have that footing to stand on amidst the challenging stuff. Not only that, you don't have this footing to stand on. You're you're not then enabled to give God the glory and honor and praise by depending upon Him and seeing Him as the one who's using this for your good. It's crucial. Don't rob yourself of the footing to stand on. And don't rob God of the glory that comes from knowing that you have footing to stand on. That somehow God is in this. You see? You see? This is vital to understanding life and suffering and all the things we go through. All things. Let's start categorizing all things. thought the Old Testament would take a long time to read. We're going to categorize all things. This is going to be a long, long sermon. How about a sampling? The promotion and the pink slip. The acceptance letter... And the rejection, the win and the loss, the purchase and the foreclosure, the pregnancy and the morning sickness, as I heard some ladies talking this morning, the birth and the death, the compliment and the slander, the health and the illness, the peace and the war, the justice and the tyranny, the honor roll and the academic probation, And the list goes on and 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 on. on. If all things means all things. And all it does really is show how great God's love is too. How wise he is and how powerful he is. All things, you know. All things work together for good. For believers. It's amazing. If we were talking about anyone other than God, I wouldn't believe it. This is mind-stretching, mind-boggling. I want your mind to be stretched so you can have a firm foundation in the midst of suffering. And so you can give God praise and glory and honor because He's God. Providence. And you know, I do like it that sometimes I can look back and say that catastrophe in my life led to this and this and this and to God be the glory that I understand it now. Sometimes. I think of my own father's death. That's a pretty big event in my life. I was still a teenager. Man, I miss my dad. I want to go hang out with my dad. I missed out on a lot of things. But I can say, circumstantially, as I look back, I couldn't at the time, it seems like that was a major event that led to me being converted. So there, there, there's an example. I can see that. But I can't always see it, and, and I'm sure you could give examples as well where things have just absolutely been catastrophic, and then later on you say, I see how God used that. Surely five-year-old Steve Saint didn't see the good of hearing about his missionary father being speared to death by an Indian warrior in Ecuador, right? Some of you know the story. He was with Jim Elliott. Steve Saint was five years old when his father was speared to death. But as you may know, or you may not know, the very same warrior that killed Nate Saint, Steve's dad, today is a professing Christian. Let me tell you, it's a trip. It's a trip to see Steve Saint standing next to the warrior who killed his father doing ministry together. Who would have thunk it? But you see, there's an example where you actually see eventually how how, how it worked out. But we don't always get to see. But we can always know Romans 8.28 and the reality and that firm foundation. Whether we know how it's going to work in this life or not, I know that I know that I know that God somehow is using this for my good and ultimately His glory. And so I can have some stability and perseverance through the whole thing. And that, that is priceless. That is just vital to living in an upside down world that is chaotic. It's essential to us. Now, what we need to do, because we really, really need to understand this, is we need to talk about a couple of objections. So let's leave well enough alone, let's praise God for providence, and that He does this for his people. And that he is causing all things, and all things means all things. And now let's talk about having a problem with that, which is absolutely crazy. Ultimately, let's not have a problem with that. This is not meant to be controversial. Romans 8 wasn't meant to be controversial. It's meant to be comforting. But if I could just pose a couple of objections and, and have us work through these this is really vital not so much the first one but the second one to your Christian worldview and so I want to take some time to talk about it but one question would be how could anyone cause all things to work together for good throughout history that's an easy one that's not controversial really they couldn't Unless it's God. All things? Bacteria? Microbes? All things. It points us to the grandeur of God and the greatness of God, because only God could do that. We talked a little bit about that last time. But here's the question I really wanted to get at. How does Romans 8.28... Relate God to evil. How does Romans 8 28 relate God to evil? Lots has been said in this matter, and books have been written, and debates have been held, and much, much water has gone under the bridge. In the days ahead, we'll talk about the history of this doctrine, because it's important that we understand that. But history's not the authority in this matter. But there's been a lot said. How are we going to deal with this issue? How does God cause all things to work together for good? And how does that relate God to evil? It's really an important question. And by the way, that my, my view is um, classic, historic, Protestant, Reformed view uh, of of evil and how God relates to evil and all that kind of... This isn't some kind of OBC doctrine, you know... Um, just to show my cards ahead of time. So we'll talk about that. But this isn't anything new, and I'm not trying to present some kind of new spin. Here is what most Christians who've thought about these issues, I think I could dare say, in church history have believed. Not so much in recent days. Think with me if you would. We're going to drive some stakes in the ground. Answering the question... If all things, but what about evil and God and how does he relate? It's really vital that we get some stakes in the ground that we hang our thoughts or or place our thoughts on these stakes. Stake number one in understanding this issue. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. If we don't have that established, we really don't have anything. But let's put that stake in the ground first in answering that question. He is sovereign. He's capital S sovereign. He's totally sovereign. What I mean by sovereign, it's a word for royalty. It means he is the king. Okay? He, he, he's, he's in charge. He decrees because that's what kings do. And if he's an all-powerful, all-wise, the creator of the whole universe king, it's capital S sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. How else do I say it? He's sovereign. <laughs> We've got to put that stake in the ground. And I want you to look at passage after passage, after passage, after passage, because we can't assume this, but Romans eight twenty eight does assume this. And then we're going to draw another, and then we're going to put another stake in the ground, that God is not evil, and therefore he doesn't do evil. And then we're going to put another stake in the ground, and that is that God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. Because, by the way, if he doesn't, he's not sovereign. Because evil does happen. Okay, it might be big to put your head around, but it's not really that complicated. God is sovereign. God is not evil, so he doesn't do evil. Stake number two. Stake number three on the tripod. God is behind evil, ultimately. He uses it. Even though he himself is not evil. Okay? That's what I'm proposing. Don't believe a word I've said unless you've already looked at the passages. Let's let's go. Let's look at God is absolutely sovereign. He's totally in control as a decreeing God. We're going to look at Psalm 103, Psalm 115, Psalm 135, Job 42, Isaiah 14, Isaiah 46, and Ephesians 111. And no, I'm not a quarterback and I'm not calling audibles. <laughs> but as a beloved professor uh, said, get out your WD-40. Okay? Because we're going to keep things moving and they're going to move quickly because I don't want you just to accept my word for this, but I don't want you to, to not think of God as sovereign. So look at, with me, if you would, to Psalm 103. As someone said, the sovereignty of God is God's favorite doctrine. And if you were God, it would be your favorite one too. It's because it's Showing Him as supreme, in charge, in control. Nothing gets by Him. He's God. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom, or as the NASB says, His sovereignty rules over all. Doesn't get better than that? Doesn't get clearer than that. God's sovereignty, His, His rulership rules over Everything. Alright, now let's go to Psalm 115 verse 3. We're just going to see the same thing, but let's make sure we put all of the nails in the casket of any kind of attack against the sovereignty of God. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. Note the superiority. He's above. He's supreme. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. It's Good. God does whatever He wants to do. He's in charge. He does all that He pleases. That assumes he, he doesn't do anything that He doesn't want to do. How about Psalm 135, verse 6? We're going to see the same thing. Psalm 135, verse 6. This is all foundational to Romans 8.28. 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all the deeps his point is everywhere god does whatever he wants to do because he's god he's in charge turn with me if you would to isaiah 14 isaiah is to the right you start moving your way past some small books and you get to the big book of isaiah Jeremiah is a little bit too far. As you're turning to Isaiah 14, listen to Job 42, verse 2. Job 42, verse 2 says, speaking about God, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God, no purpose or no decree of yours can be stopped. It can't be done because you're who? You're God. It's crucial. It's vital. And by the way, believers have loved this doctrine because again, this is what is so practical because it allows us to really believe romans eight twenty eight and have it not be some 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 mere sentimentality that we can put on a plaque and hang on our wall and have it mean nothing I mean sure, there have been people who don't like the sovereignty of God try Adam and Eve right and Satan so I mean, you'll be in famous company if you don't like the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It's not good company. But the whole point is, you know, who do you think you are getting off acting like God? Well, I'm God. I'm sovereign. That's what's going on here. Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 14 verse 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That's, that's awesome. How about 46, uh, Isaiah 46, verses 9, 10, and 11? Then we'll look at one New Testament example. But, but this sounds like this God actually could do what he promises in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. He's so godlike. He's so in charge. He's so sovereign. He's not dependent upon us. Isaiah 46, verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Verse 11, Toward the end says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Don't you like that? Man. We're not talking about I dream of Genie," You know? God says something's going to happen, and it happens. How about Ephesians chapter 1? Let's make sure we see a New Testament sampling. In Ephesians 1, you see, uh, one, th- by the way, this is where my mind goes. When you say sovereignty of God, sovereign over everything, the good and the bad, I have to go to Ephesians 1 just where my mind goes. He is, he is in charge of everything ultimately because He's sovereign. And if He's not in charge ultimately of everything, He's not sovereign. And all those verses we just read ought to be taken out of the Bible because He does have purposes. He does have decrees. Ephesians 1.11 says, halfway through the verse, referring to God, Him who works all Things, Sort of like Romans 8.28, right? Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I like that. I like that because it's clear. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. In some way, shape, or form, everything that's ever happened on planet Earth, somehow... As according to the plan and decree of God. Hmm. We won't take the time to look these up, but this includes the small things. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, sort of like throwing the dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I thought that was just luck. Uh, nope. Matthew 10:29: Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They're relatively worthless. You can get two for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. How about that? The bird that just fell off the wire because some little snot-nosed bratty kid shot it with its da- Daisy BB gun like I used to do, that did not happen apart from ultimately the sovereign decree of God. And if you think it did happen, apart from the sovereign decree of God, and Romans 8.28 is suspect, because Ephesians one eleven is suspect, and all of a sudden, we don't have God who's sovereign. Even the little things, the trivial things. Even the quote-unquote natural disasters. Amos 3.6 says, In a trumpet, is a trumpet blown in the city, and are the people not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? What? That wasn't from the Book of Mormon. <laughs> or some other book. That's in Amos in the Old Testament. If a calamity occurs in the city, has not the Lord done it? Somehow, God is involved in everything that happens. Because He's sovereign. And He works all things after the counsel of His will. Romans 8.28, And He is causing all things to work together for good for those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purpose. Wow! Controversial, yes, because it just shatters the pride of human beings but comforting. This is amazing, this God we're talking about. Absolutely amazing. Stake number one, God is sovereign, totally sovereign. Stake number two, He's not evil, therefore He's not the author of evil. For the sake of time, just listen to Psalm 5, 4. Evil may not dwell with you. don't get out of balance I'm not going to say God's the author of evil Psalm 5 keeps me from doing that totally sovereign not evil so not the one who does evil third stake God uses evil to accomplish his purposes for the ultimate good of believers, it's the conclusion we have to come to. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Genesis forty-five. We're going to look at a few more passages to make sure we have this in our minds. Not that there aren't questions. Not that there won't be. Um, there's perfect understanding to this. Here's what's happened. Here, as you're turning to Genesis. Philosophers and theologians and and thinkers, Bible teachers who've tried to think this through, the ones who seem to have done the best job keeping the biblical data in place instead of ignoring passages, like the Amos passage, these are the conclusions they've been coming to now for years. Totally sovereign, not evil, so he doesn't do evil, but he uses evil. And here's what they've said, and rightfully so. Therefore, we must conclude he uses secondary means. He uses evil people to accomplish his purposes, but he himself is not evil. So he uses guys like Pharaoh to accomplish his greater purposes. It still doesn't solve all of the issues, but that's essentially how it's been worded over and over and over and over again. And I'm going to say it the same way. And try not to be novel. But let's see that God uses evil. Genesis 45, the classic story of Joseph that I was referring to earlier Genesis 45, we, we see in verse 4 at the end, Whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph is addressing his brothers, and he says, You sold into Egypt, verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. And they did. Read the account. They absolutely did that, and it was evil. Keep reading. For God sent me before you to preserve life. What? Is this, you know, historical redaction? No, Joseph's not trying to change history. He's saying, you know what? You did that. But you need to know that God was in it, serving a greater purpose to preserve people. And so get over it. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Romans 8.28. It's just a, a, a preview version of it. Then if you keep reading, he talks about why and the goodness of God in it. Then verse 7 And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He's got a right understanding of the sovereignty of God. Now, if you would, turn to Genesis 50. It even is clearer than Genesis 45. Genesis chapter 50. God uses evil. And by the way, if Ephesians 1.11 is true that all things, he causes all thing to, things to work uh, according to the counsel of his will, or all things happen according to the counsel of his will, you, you, you have to see God even seeing fit to have evil in this world to serve a greater cause, or it never would have happened. Otherwise, he's not sovereign. Otherwise, Ephesians 1.11 isn't true. But look at Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I drew a black box around the word evil. You meant evil against me. And I drew another box around the word it. But God meant it for good. God meant evil for good even though he himself isn't evil, Psalm 5, but he meant they're evil for good, to serve a greater purpose of preserving the people. Now that's a classic, great illustration, but let me give you the better one. What's the most horrific, horrendous, wicked, evil act ever committed by the hands of men? There's a big hint behind me, okay? And you guys got it crucifixion and if you look at Acts 2 and you look at Acts 4 guess who's behind the crucifixion of Jesus well Pharaoh is or not not Pharaoh I'm getting my guys Herod's involved I'm getting my thugs confused (sighs) wicked evil sinners are behind that it's true and we're going to talk about human responsibility as it relates to the providence providence of God in the days ahead not today but God is behind it. Listen to Acts 2.23. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, now talking to the sinners, Peter's preaching, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But it wasn't bad luck that got him there. Read prophecy, right? Read Ephesians 1. Before the foundation of the world, it was planned to have people saved. And Ephesians 1 ties it to the cross. And so God used those evil men to make sure His greater purposes were carried out so that we could be redeemed. God is behind it. Make no question about it. Listen to Acts four, verse 27. Acts 4:27 says, "For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate." along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, how about this in verse 28, to do whatever your God, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Thugs are accountable and responsible, but make no mistake about it, it all happened according to the predestined plan of God, or it wouldn't have happened. And why are we going to have a problem with that? We're going to have a problem with that because we're tired of God acting like God, I guess. But you know what? That's dumb because it's ultimately for our good. I want God to act like God. I want you to want God to act like God. Because that's ultimately where the comfort is and that's ultimately where His glory is. God is God. Stake number one, He's sovereign. Stake number two, He's not evil. Stake number three, He most certainly uses evil to bring about greater good. There's no mistaking it. Look at the cross. And then when you go back to Romans 8.28, you go back there and you say, this is worthy of a plaque on my wall that is sentimental, yes. But so much more. Because it's true and it makes sense. And we're talking about a God who is actually godlike. That this can be true. Don't let people take that away from you. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield had a cool name, but that's not my point. (laughs) Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield was a great defender of the faith and a promoter of the faith in the late 1800s at Princeton. And I liked what he had to say about this. A firm faith in the universal providence of God... Is the solution of all earthly problems. It's pretty good. As long as you include the cross in that, which he would. You want to deal with life? Providence. But providence assumes you believe in the sovereignty of God. You want to deal with life and the good and the bad? providence is the solution and we're at a place where we don't even know what providence is not you but our movement interestingly enough Warfield went on to say it is almost equally true that a clear and full apprehension of the universal providence of God is likewise the solution of most theological problems I say amen to that as well. And I believe that most Christians who've gone before us, well, by now they're entirely sanctified if they're in heaven. So I believe that all Christians who've gone before us, but if we read history and we allow their writings to weigh in, they're joining Warfield. And they're joining us this morning saying, amen. Amen. Amen the key. Let God be God so that we might trust Him and so that we might face any difficulty in life and so that we might glorify Him. Pray with me if you would. Father, help us to know You as You really are. Father, I pray for those who are here today, those who are listening. that we would not create a God according to our own liking, perhaps in our own image, who is not sovereign, who is not in charge, who can't make Romans 8.28 promises, that we would repent of such idols if necessary, and that we would find ourselves clinging to you for who you've revealed yourself to be, trustworthy, sovereign, sovereign, loving, kind, and gracious, seeking the good of Your people, ultimately for the glory of Your name. Amen.